If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we will embrace the chaos of Jurassic Park in a candid conversation with The Ringer's Brian Curtis, one of the world's most talented feature writers. Brian and I break down everything in this franchise from the feminist theories about the dinosaurs to just how the hell we got an NBA team named the Raptors to even the optimal levels of meltage on ice cream. John Hammond maybe should have gotten to that vanilla a little bit (laughs) sooner. I'm your co-host Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago with me in the studio. Been a while since we've sat across from each other. Our producer extraordinaire, our co-host, the 40-year-old millennial, Mr. Joe Reed. Joe, how you doing? I'm doing great, Brad. Uh, how old are you, Joe? We call you the 40-year-old millennial. I, I, I worry that people think you're 40 then. I, that's okay. I'm actually currently 26. I'm going to be 27 this weekend. What? Yeah. Awkward. I don't have a gift for you. That's okay. It Just being here is enough. Is enough of a Great. gift. Seeing your face. Great. Well, then I got Adam an extra Gareth, gift for you. Adam and Gareth, you uh, you owe me one. I have an extra gift for you. You get to edit this too. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. <laughs> That's Christmas. <laughs> All right. Uh, not with us right now. Adam Willard, Gareth Hughes. Those guys are out. Uh, Gareth had a shoot. Adam working somewhere, traveling you guys somewhere. Always busy. Um, and we've got other shows with all of us coming um, at you, the few things we've canned recently. So, But in the meantime, just want to give you some extra stuff, man. It's a busy time. People moving around this time of year. Work's heating up. Planning is done. And I figure the more pods on the queue, the better. Yeah. Never know when you get stuck in an airport. Dear God, tell me about it. I've been traveling like crazy the last few weeks. You have been. Where'd you yeah. go? New York? Uh, yeah, we were just in New York, and um, me too, man. How do you? What are, what are your thoughts about New York City being a, being a Midwesterner, being a Chicagoan? The I go there a lot for work. the The best analysis of it, I forget who it was. It might have been Gareth who said this. It's really great if you're young or rich. I am neither, and therefore, it's fine. I get that, but it's not. It's not like I don't do when I'm <laughs> when I'm in New York. I don't like do New York. Like some of my colleagues, they travel and they're just like, oh, I hit this new restaurant. I did this. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm yeah. like, I'm staying at the Times Square, like <laughs> Sheridan. Yep. I want in and out proximity to my meetings. And like the, the fanciest I get is, unless it were like, you know, a big group dinner, but the fanciest I do on my, on my, you know, on my own is like, I went to BW3s there a few months ago. <laughs> yeah. A guy on the street, we walked into a Pret. Pret Manger or whatever the, whatever those restaurants are called. It's like a Cosi or a Panera or whatever. They're all over New York. Oh, yeah. So I like, walked in there, and this New Yorker was walking down the street. This is like 7 a.m. before our shoot. He's like, you're going in there? Those are everywhere. I'm like, what? I just want a bagel, dude. Come on. Yeah, don't yeah, judge. They're, they're everywhere because people eat them. Yeah. Like, I know that I could go get a nice little something New York style, but I'm... No. I am... I am when I go to New York, it starts off high. It is like... The Hollywood, you, what you see in movies, like we're in New York, we're staying in Manhattan. It's going to be great. Yeah, by day three, 
oh my god get me out of here Darn. i can't walk on the sidewalk <laughs> i realize like if I was, oh it's not that bad now you sound now you sound like the 50 year old millennial it's not that bad it's terrible man I'm we a live in chicago walker. it's not like we live in rural arkansas <laughs> and we've never seen a, a crowded side you work in you work in the john hancock building hey i get in and out man I'm, my express bus picks me up right outside i get out of downtown as quick as i can Ah, uh, well Kudos Poor to you, my Joe. <laughs> All right. Well, it's just you and me. I want to. We're going to stick to the format as much as possible. So right now, I want to turn the open of the show wide open, an open floor for us to talk about anything related to the world sports world or not. I got something. You you're looking Yo. at me like, go ahead. I don't have anything. No, I love it. I want to hear what you got. Clay Matthews, Packers. Is it too early to call him a Packers great? I don't know. I don't know when you get into the whole like future Hall of Famer or what yeah, it like. I don't know. Uh, he's who, all I would say you know. give the peak. He'd be like a Jacksonville Jaguars great. He'd be. He's a. He's a very popular Packers player. <laughs> you know. He. They've had a long history what of great the, players. What are, the, what are the gold, silver, and bronze rankings? Of like you're. A, you're a gold Jaguar. <laughs> he's like an all. A, he's like a multiple time All Pro. Was part of that title team. He's like a. He's a bronze player right now. Like on the cusp of silver, if he plays a couple more good years. Yeah. Gold would be like Favre. Now, can you go up in rankings when at, even at, well, if you retired now, but then can can that can that ticker change depending on who comes after you or, or, oh, or yeah. your post? I mean, don't you think career? Favre's legacies looks a little different now that Aaron Rodgers has been so good for so long? Yeah, but does that make him a silver? No, exactly. I don't really know. How, he's a good. He's a great player. You, you, well, I would argue that like OJ's rankings took a small hit. Later, after his Slightly, career was yeah. over, but they went back up after they just won an Academy Award for the documentary. So he's <laughs> OJ back on. T- Let's start there with OJ. Did you think that should have been in the Oscars? Yeah, I think it's. I think embracing sort of. Um, I mean, why? Because of the length? No, because it was made for ESPN to air on television, and they liked it so much they threw it in a couple of theaters to make it a movie versus a TV thing. Uh, it was a movie though. I mean, if you if Lifetime made a worthy enough movie and they were like, this actually has Oscar contention, and then they went and said, like, we're going to air it and, like, we're going to screen it in 10 theaters in L.A. and New York, and then it was nominated. It's like they're following the rules. I think it's an interesting sort of change of format, and it was good. Look, you're talking about that Lifetime example as though Mother May I Sleep With Danger starring Tori Spelling did not deserve an oscar well did they did they seek oscar status i don't know if they went out of their way to do that they should have Uh, i had no i was all for it i was all for it i had no real problem with it i mean it's a it's a little bit of a cheapy thing to sort of throw it in one theater but i don't think that's all that different that's what all like the the prestige pictures go they Christmas come out Eve in New York and LA New Year's Eve and then they come out in March and and things like short films and stuff are really subjective. Like a lot of those need a theatrical run. So they'll just show up at some random place, but it's not like a short film plays across the country. So I'm cool game in the system. And the, it was such a good work of art that great. Like the more people that I mean, I deserved any award it could get. I mean, it's fascinating. I'm sure more, I'm sure the Peabody's and more things are on the way. Agree. Clay Matthews. Okay. Clay Matthews coming back around. He was in Pitch Perfect 2. And I just read an interview with him on USA Today for the win saying he wants his own movie. <laughs> I support this. <laughs> Interesting. In the Pitch Perfect, Pitch Perfect universe or just 
That is a really good question. So here's his exact <clears throat> quote. And he's, he's it's a it's a printed article, so probably he's just goofing around. But I'm going to choose to read this dead serious. <laughs> we got to get him on the show and talk to him about it. I'm hoping to get a feature film now. I've proven myself as a cameo guy. I want to be a superhero. I'm going to throw my name out there for anyone who is looking for a superhero. And then the interviewer says, do you have any particular one? He says, not really. Maybe we can find one. Maybe Thor's younger brother. No. That seems like you can't just say like, all right, I'm interested. Suitors just come at me. You got to like, he's got to, you got to work for it. He was in Pitch Perfect too, singing. That's working for it. What's next? That doesn't mean you can be Thor's younger brother. All right, I'm with you. I would that means rather you could show up in Pitch Perfect three with a slightly larger role, and then you got to keep working your way into these. You got to take baby steps. You don't just. I would rather see an expansion in the Pitch Perfect two universe. I don't. I didn't see Pitch Perfect one or two, so I don't know his role. But is there room for him in a sequel? Did his character die in the movie? He means be he's barely in it. <laughs> and you think he sh- and you think he should be a, a, a leading man now? I think all athletes should do at least one movie. If you've been in a Pro Bowl or been elected to an All Pro team, I think you should have to star in a movie before or after. Like you're not going to a I Pro think Bowl you, until you're you in get a movie. Famous, it's kind of like you need to start crossing over. Interesting. You got to grow that professional brand, bro. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Is like, this a musical I, like, thing? Is this support- a music thing? Is this like a like a record deal thing? Is this like a no? Is man. he going to be the singing athlete who pops up in the background of Beauty and the Beast live action when it's oh, like, hey, it's Gaston's great. older brother? That would have been great. Clay. I mean, I don't know why these guys don't do more of this. Like, if you just call, like when I'm on Green, called Zack Snyder, and he's he's like, I'm a huge fan of your movies. Like, if you want to put me in Batman versus Superman, go for it. By the and way, have you seen that movie? It's a steaming pile of dog shit. It's bad. And I don't remember seeing him in there. I did watch he it. He got cut. He got cut from the theatrical cut. I, I didn't oh. see it on DVD, so I have not seen like the expanded scenes. He was thug number two. As as announced on this very podcast. Yeah, that was and, some... uh, got, Episode 13, I believe, and goes <laughs> goes viral. And all of a sudden, everyone's calling us about Amon doing, doing Batman. And then he's not even in the movie. And then he's not in the movie, which is a real bummer. I think that all these guys should stick. be trying to our... cross over. Now, look, I mostly support the Uncle Drew movie, <laughs> but even I admit that like it's weird to turn a an advertising caricature into. You didn't a like full... the Geico Caveman TV show. Nick Kroll was in that, wasn't he? <laughs> I have no idea. Do you know? Can we look up real quick who the the, the cavemen were? Take a guess at when you think. Um, take a guess at when you think that came out. When, what year? Um, God, I don't know. I'm going to say 2002. 2007. What? Okay, Nick Kroll was one of the cavemen. Really? Yeah. Bill English. Is he the main guy? Uh, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know who that guy is. Clearly, being in the caveman TV show did not launch his career. Wow. Oh, this is Jeff Daniel Phillips. I was like, Jeff Daniels was in this? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Nick Kroll, yeah, I remember. So you don't, but you're pro, you're pro 
Uncle Drew. See, that to me is I'm like a, that's, a, ca- that's a character, man. though. That's like a fun development. Yeah. It's in the vein of like the, what was that, Johnny, the old Dirty Grandpa movie? Like something like that or like the Big Mama's House or the Medeas of the world. Look, it's like I'm, a, or, yeah. or, the, or the, the, the Eddie Murphy clumps or whatever that was. Dr. Doolittle? No. You know oh, no, no. I know which one you're talking about, though. Okay, so... Like, that. that is... To, to me, I get it. Like, people... I get that. Uncle Drew, the, the, the advertising folks who are the studio folks who said that they want to do the Uncle Drew movie made the mistake of saying they want to expand the universe. And so people were joking about, oh, you're going to make, like, the Marvel Cinematic Universe of Uncle Drew. Of old, And I'm like, absolutely. Players. And maybe this is how we do it. Clay Matthews comes in, and he's, like, the, the, like the superhero of, of that universe. Football. I think if you if you if you put it to me right now, if they made an Uncle Drew movie, like a forty eight hour film festival Joe style, like if they just made it over a weekend, <laughs> still would be better than like Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Yeah, it might be. Can you do Uncle Drew with other sports? The only reason I like you can't Why not? you can't do that with football. Like you just you can't dress a guy up to look old and then have him crush everybody. He's got a helmet on. Like, it just doesn't work well, as well. We've had this conversation about how basketball players are, you know, the most exposed. Like, you you couldn't do, like, soccer, maybe. There's something about getting dunked on by an old man that's just yeah. more funny than getting a, a touchdown thrown on you by an old man. Speaking of soccer, my last topic on wide open here. Neymar, I guess, was in... Triple X, the return of Xander yes. Cage. I remember watching the trailer and the friend I was watching it with said, is that Neymar? <laughs> <laughs> so how did this get made? Did an episode about it. And they had no idea who Neymar was. Really? So they just kept referring to him as that soccer guy. <laughs> I'm like, he's one of the most famous people on the planet. Yeah. Just shows you, uh, you got some work to do to hit the, uh, the, the, uh, postgraduate uh, upright citizens brigade uh, Hollywood exactly. circuit. They are uh, in their lane. You got yeah. uh, demographics that they could be hitting. All right. Speaking of movies, Jurassic Park. So speaking Brian, of Neymar, Brian Curtis came on. Brian Curtis, one of the most um, celebrated sports feature writers in the country, uh, really got on a lot of people's radars during his stint at Grantland, where he wrote some of the most memorable pieces. He is now with The Ringer, um, doing great. He wrote. A couple pieces that really resonated on this show, like uh, he did a big analysis of the whole stick to sports culture mm-hmm. and whether media would ever, um, you know, be walking that back. We actually talk about that at the end of the interview. But I really wanted to talk to him about Jurassic Park. He, when I reached out, he said he described himself as an authority on matters of Jurassic Park, and he was not lying. Nice. He knows <laughs> a lot about it. So let me ask you this: How old were you when you saw your first Jurassic Park? Being twenty six. Um. So I was, I, I'm 85, so I'm just a slight yeah, bit older. I honestly don't remember. One of the first memories I have, this is weird, Jurassic Park 3 came out maybe when I was in like middle school, junior high. He came out in 2001. So I was 11. Yeah. So I remember seeing that, and I remember seeing Jurassic Park 3 in theaters, but I had seen the other two. I just don't remember seeing them in, in theaters. But well, 93, you would have been way too young to see Jurassic Park, right? Yeah, I was three. Yeah. I mean... uh. I remember seeing Jurassic Park and being blown away. I remember seeing Lost World and universally agreeing with my friends that it was horrific. And we get into because that. Of, because of just how dramatic and 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 violent it was. No, because it was <laughs> it was awful. 
It was you didn't like the gymnastics thing where she's twirling around on the bars and kicking raptors in the face when the RVs are hanging off the cliff or with, when it freaking is running through LA or wherever it is San Diego. With Brian, I I said that there hasn't been a, a more convenient location for gymnastics equipment since the movie Jim Kata. <laughs> if you know, it's like the, know. it's a karate movie where they got this gymnastics champion. That, how did this get made? Introduced me to this too. It's it, they did an episode on Jim Kata, which is like a movie about. Wait, this I've seen this poster. Gymnast who yes. just fights dudes, and at one point he's fighting in the middle of the town square, and there just happens to be a pommel horse. There. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yep. And then Steven Spielberg took that idea and, and made a hundred million put, dollar movie. Put out of dinosaurs it. around it. Worst Spielberg movie: Lost World, Jurassic Park Two, or um, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Um, I just watched Raiders of the Lost Ark yesterday for the first time. No, oh, but like, we were like, "Hey, this is on Hulu." Um, it's great, by the way. Still, holds maybe up. Crystal Skull. Crystal Skull is one of the worst movies I've ever seen because the thing I didn't. I remember watching it, and being like, "That wasn't so bad." Everyone's like, "It's aliens." That's a total yeah. reach. I'm like, and the Ark of the Covenant is not. Shut up, but. The amazing thing about watching Raiders of the Lost Ark was how it's all practical effects. Like right. it's so impressive, and you your edge of the seat. It, it's amazing. I talk about this with Brian. I'm like, Plus I don't know dinosaurs how dinosaurs are sweet. Crystal yeah. Skull was like overly CGI, whatever. I was like, I don't understand how the guy made Jurassic Park in '93, and then he makes CGI monkeys that look like garbage. Fifteen years later, <laughs> like what's going on? I mean, I just. King, Crystal Skull, I've never been more excited for a movie that let me down. And that includes Phantom Menace. If you said to me, what movie were you most excited about and were most let down by? It would be like Crystal Skull number one, uh, Mallrats number two. <laughs> I loved Clerks and Mallrats was so awful. I think Mallrats is great. It's awful. Anyways. There's no redeeming quality to it. <laughs> and then number- the Stink Palm? Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> that movie's so bad. I love, you, I love this open. If you section, want to defend Mallrats, I'll I'll like you you email us. I'll I'll let you on the show. I'll do an interview with you. <laughs> I'll do an interview with you from your office. I hope Jason average Lee person, calls in. Average person in America, if you listen to this and you and you want to, you want to be on the show. Uh, just let me know. And uh, is this real? Sports at gmail I will call you. I'll do like five minutes of you just like you got to defend Mallrats to me. I know someone who I could go talk to and they'll call you. Okay. No, they got to they listen to the show and they got to do it authentically. And then uh, after that, it'd be like Phantom Menace, and, which I initially thought was like disappointing, but like really hit me. I mean, that's probably, that's one in 1A is that in Crystal Skull. Interesting. And then I would also probably say Matrix Reloaded. Yeah, I get that. We were looking forward to that. You got to understand too. There was a delay on that. The Matrix... I guess there was a delay on Star Wars, too. The Matrix was, like, the first, like, dorm DVD phenomenon. Like, everyone had a DVD player, and The Matrix was, like, the first thing you buy, because it was, like, a movie that I didn't even see in theaters. I just heard was great, and then I saw it in college, and I was was like, whoa, that movie was crazy good. Yeah. Yeah. And then and now they're going to make two more of them back to back. It's going to be awesome. They should not do that. Yeah. The Matrix was a perfect movie that they ruined with those sequels. They undercut the entire. It's not just that like they made it and they didn't need to make them. They changed what the humans were fighting for. 
They were no longer fighting for justice against oppressive machines. They were just fighting for subconscious choice. I honestly don't even remember. I know there was some twins in a in a in a highway chase scene, and then uh, there's the the Will Ferrell parody at the VMAs. Yeah, actually, that was where he's good. the guy. I'm the gonna have to look that up. TVs. I don't even know what his name is. Yeah. Anyways, all right. Well, <clears throat> we're gonna come back with our distractions after the interview. <laughs> Brian Curtis coming up from the Ringer, Jurassic Park, Lost World, Jurassic Park Three, underrated by the way, and Jurassic it's World, good. including I put him on the spot and say, what would you do? to resuscitate the franchise. Stick around. Joe and I will be back in a little bit. All right. I got to start with the most pressing question in my mind. Would these movies have worked if the dinosaurs, if the dinosaurs had feathers? <laughs> no, I don't think so, right? <laughs> Thank you. I totally I am 100% against the accurate portrayal of dinosaurs in the scientific community if only because I don't want them ruining future dinosaur movies. Yeah, right. I mean, it just wouldn't it wouldn't be nearly as terrifying. And I think, you know, we have to remember 1993. This is what we still thought dinosaurs looked like, right? Yeah. Maybe if you were on in the cutting edge of scientific journals, right? This is we we still thought dinosaurs looked like they did when you know they fought King Kong in the in the teens or the twenties, right? Were, were you surprised so, that they didn't make at least some sort of nod to feathered dinosaurs when Jurassic World came out? Given how much science has come out between then, yeah, I, I, a little bit, I guess. But I think it's it's the same problem. It's like I, it'd be hard to get scared of those things, right? You think you're then watching some crazy, bad, you know, Starship Trooper-style sci-fi movie where we're fighting weird right. aliens rather than fighting these uh, these childhood things we love so much. <laughs> well, I mean, you mentioned the love of the movies. I'm a big Jurassic Park fan. You have described yourself as the authority, which I, I don't think is, is, is something <laughs> that I will question too much. I mean, I, I, a lot of people remember uh, your very popular um, article on the subject for Grantland a couple years ago. When did you first, I mean, clearly everyone knows the movie came out in 93. It was a phenomenon. So it's hard to say, like, when did you first get into it? But I, did you read the book prior to the movie? I believe so, right? You know, I'm trying to remember. I think I did. I, my first memory of it is actually weirdly getting like a, you know, Barnes & Noble pamphlet or something and seeing the cover of, of Jurassic Park, the uh, Michael yep. Crichton's novel, and going, whoa, you know, with that dinosaur skeleton. I don't even yep. know what this is, but I want that. Right. Exactly. And I mean, then. That was like was, the old white cover, right? Like before later iterations when the movie logo came out, I just it was just a, just a, a plain white cover with a T Rex skeleton on it, right? Yeah, so spare and so kind of scary, and you know it wasn't even it wasn't even saying necessarily that dinosaurs came to life. You just saw the cover and went, "Oh yeah, I want, I want this." Now, you have said you think the book is the purest and best form of Jurassic Park. Do, do you still believe that? Oh, absolutely. What how, what is it about it that makes it stand out, especially against the first movie, which I think you can make a pretty strong case is, um, uh, you know, is one of the most definitive action blockbusters of all time. Like, why do you think the book holds up so well? You know, it's funny. I mean, it's 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 kind of like first of all, it's really it's just a very long, kind of satisfying read. You know, in in the in the thriller category, I think also it just 
the book really laid down a lot of the things that made the movie work, right? Like Michael Crichton as a writer has this narrative problem, right? It's like, I want to write a book about dinosaurs, but I have mm-hmm. to convince the audience that dinosaurs could have come back to life, which nobody is, is going to believe. <laughs> so how do I do that? And, you know, him kind of cobbling together these things and figuring out, you know, this, this theory about insects and amber, which was actually an academic theory at the time, and kind of stealing that. And then using that to do it. And, you know, his, the, the, the miracle of the book is that it's convincing, right? We believe that dinosaurs could have come back to life. In fact, I think if we took a poll right now, people just generally, at least in the 90s, if we hadn't said, hey, how are, how are they going to bring dinosaurs back to life? Everyone would have said, oh, they're just going to find these bugs in amber and withdraw the blood, even though we know that doesn't work. Absolutely. But that's, that's Michael Crichton, right? And that's, and that's the book, you know, the best sci-fi, right? Or the best kind of, you know, techno thriller, whatever we want to you know, call that book is stuff that seems really, really real. And, and he pulled that off. Do you, do you consider it science fiction, thriller, horror? Like what genre would you put the franchise in? There was this thing in the nineties that was techno thriller. That was kind of a thing. Like Tom Clancy was kind of in the techno thriller zone. Yeah. You know, a little, some more political overtones to it. And it felt like an answer to Stephen King, you know, who's sort of more literary and more, but more kind of primordial terror, right? <laughs> you know, the evil, <laughs> the possessed dog or whatever, right? Uh, Crichton was about facts, and Tom Clancy, too. You know, they were about sort of piling up all these scientific facts. So you felt, Crichton once said this, that he wanted his book to read like a New Yorker article, where you just had kind of yeah. fact upon fact upon fact. So by the end of the book, you're like, oh, I believe this. You know, this is not a, this is not a weird horror story. This is, this is true. They do the exposition in the first Jurassic Park, as well as any complicated movie I can remember. And even, I know it gets a little on the nose when they're doing the the theme park ride, but they just know, <laughs> I mean, he moves it along. He always knows when to when to keep the characters in the seat and when they break out and do something else. And we'll, 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 we'll get to the rest of this, you know, scientific philosophy in, in 20 minutes. They, get, they know enough to keep the story moving now, just keep it going. And I, I agree with you. I, and, and in fact, I think, well, actually, techno thriller is a great, genre to discuss in, in general uh, do you remember disclosure the other michael crichton movie sure. about <laughs> how could i forget there's like a whole 20 minute section that's like the 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 bastard cousin of the unix system thing from jurassic park where the guy's got like a virtual reality file folder as though that was the future that was the more efficient future as you step into a machine to like pull up your word docs right that you would yeah to need yeah to find that word doc you would need to go into this whole sort of <laughs> corridor man, digital yeah. corridor yeah by the way, do I remember Disclosure? As a teenager, how could I forget Disclosure? Talk about seminal moments, no pun intended, of childhood. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Oh, I mean, Here we uh, go. and it's, <laughs> it's, so, it's so interesting to think of Crichton as he wrote both these books. Like, it just, <laughs> Disclosure, complete, I mean, it, yes, they, they sort of fit into the same, like you said, like kind of thriller genre. But Jurassic Park has so much weight to it when you think about the, the, the science he weaves in, the elements about man and nature uh the feminist theory which we'll get into in a second which of the themes i guess do you feel like work the best and why i think probably the chaos theory you know because it's the thing we remember and it's the thing he put in the mouth of of his most memorable character both in the movie and the book right ian malcolm Mm -hmm. uh brought to life so wonderfully by Jeff Goldblum in the movie that decided you could have this kind of rock star academic, you know, who's going to, who's really getting us through some really <laughs> heavy academic stuff, but he's so sort of cool. And he looks like such a hipster that you kind of, you kind of roll with it. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the thing. And you, you talk about how, how great the movie is at exposition. I was, you know, I was watching, rewatching it last night and I'm like, 
there's like there's like a raptor attack that's kind of off screen in the first two minutes. And then, you know, we got like, what, a half hour, 45 minutes of no very little dinosaur action and just a lot of talking. But they're really setting things up and they really sort of made it work. So how would you power rank the movies? If I, if I said, you know, <laughs> give me give me your list. Uh, Jurassic Park, number one, who cares? <laughs> but, you know, if forced to fill out the list, I think I would say the uh, the third movie, number two which puts me at odds with the truly dedicated Jurassic fanboys who, who hate that movie for some reason. Um, I thought The Lost World is maybe one of the worst movies Steven Spielberg has ever made. Oh, absolutely. Any kind. It's up there I mean, with it's just... Crystal Skull. I mean, it's like, it's real dog shit. <laughs> and it's so dutiful, right? Oh. I think Crichton, too, said that he he learned that they were just going to make a sequel with it without him, you know, whether he wanted to write another book or not. So even his book is, is pretty dutiful and pretty bad too. Probably one of the worst books he ever wrote. Um, so that would be, I guess that'd be third. I mean, I, it's very hard for me to categorize Jurassic world as it is with like the force awakens, because it's, you know, when you, when you're rebooting and remixing, yeah. like, I just don't even know where to rank that. Like, it's not even an original, it's not an original vision, you know, it's just <laughs> a lot of stuff we love from Jurassic park, you know, mixed up in a bowl and served back to us. So I can't, I can't even rank that one. I categorize Jurassic world as, um, as like, they just tore up, um, the second and third movies and just rebooted because I, I, yeah. I feel like it is a, in many ways, a direct, First of all, I reject the idea of a second island. I just think that the whole thing falls apart with that. I don't think it makes any sense. I never got into that that storyline. I like the idea of World as a direct generational sequel to Jurassic Park. I thought that was a clever spin. I have issues with the movie, but I give it credit for just going back to the basics, which I think the you know the basics work. Jurassic Park holds up. I mean, it's great. Right, and that's that's what reboots do, right? They remind you of the movie that you really loved, right? That's what The Force Awakens was. I know, we won't remind you of the prequels, which you hated. We'll remind you of Star Wars. <laughs> exactly. Remake it. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, because there's Crichton really, you know, I'm sure he wasn't thinking of sequels, though he was a very commercial guy and also a movie maker himself, right? Westworld and yeah. The Great Train Robbery and all that stuff. But, like, he wasn't clearly wasn't thinking of sequels with the first one because he kind of wrote himself into a narrative corner. By the way, now that Westworld has been speaking of reboots, you know, Jurassic, you know, Westworld was the proto Jurassic Park, right? Crichton just replaced the the robot cowboys with dinosaurs and 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 remade it. Yeah, and and honestly, it the movie, I guess, do you think the movie would have worked without Spielberg? And I'm sure, yes, they could have gotten someone to do it, but I don't know that any other director could have nailed both the 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 awe you know, part of, of the movie, which is the whole first part, which is just dinosaurs are real and they're majestic. And this is an enormous vision of man come to life and then go right into the horror as effectively as I think Spielberg did. Because I don't know that too many, I don't know that too many filmmakers can balance those worlds, but do you you agree with that? Or do you think another filmmaker could have made it the phenomenon that was? It's very hard to imagine. Um, yeah. A couple, you know, it's like when Crichton wrote the book, right? He they put it out for this kind of amazing kind of thing around all the studios, and everybody wanted to buy it. And there's this whole like counterfactual history where Tim Burton, who was the guy that one of the studios was trying oh. to buy it for, makes Jurassic Park. Imagine mm-hmm. that, right? Oh. I I think with Spielberg, two big things. One is the the special effects, right? Like his ability to figure that part out and push those guys and really get to 
this convincing dinosaur, movie dinosaur, which of course makes the movie. If it didn't have that, it wouldn't have worked. Right. And the second thing, as I as I said way back when in Grantland, was that he figured out that you don't, when you make monster movies, you want to shoot from the ground up and look at these big monsters. You know, you want to make sure you're really in the human's eyes in that great scene in the in the Land Rovers or the um, Florida, Florida Explorers, I think, in the movie, where they're shooting. You know, you have to make sure those dinosaurs look big. I remember seeing Pacific Rim a few years ago, and it, when it's big monster fighting big monster, that just looks like two small people, right? That doesn't look. Yeah. It's only you can only appreciate the size of things when you when you're small and you remember that like, that's the scary part. And he really figured that out. You had one of the best lines about this movie that I, I can that really spoke to me when you you wrote in your Grantland piece that T Rex is a series of small gestures, and 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 you specifically you talk about the pupil constricting and things like that. I absolutely agree. And, and, and Spielberg had a way of, um, fine. He, it, I think throughout the movie, there's subtle touches. There's the, the little, the little like objects look closer in the mirror and the pupil constricting the, the, the water glass kind of, um, vibrating ever so slightly, which I know has become a cliche, but at the time talk about evoking a sense of dread without having to see the creature. And I, don't you think that, he learned so much from his Jaws experience that he was able to apply and, and, and I think nailed most of the best parts. So when you see T-Rex in his, all, in his full glory later, it, it's, it's like an amazing payoff as opposed to, yeah, I get it. It's, he's been roaming around the entire movie. <laughs> totally, totally. And, you know, the other thing from Jaws is here's what you have to do when you don't exactly have the special effects that you want, right? right? I mean, right. we remember 1993, like he made, I think there are 55 digital effects shots in that movie. Like in, in by comparison, like a Star Wars movie or current movies have between twenty. I think Mad Max, the recent one, had like twenty five hundred, right? So yeah. fifty five versus thousands. And when you rewatch it, you're like, oh, he's doing all this stuff. The pupils uh, <laughs> constricting and and in the you know the water rumbling and all that stuff because he does he can't just show dinosaurs, right? So he's got to be really clever about it, just like in Jaws. You know, he's got to be really, really, really clever when he does do it. Um, and now, you know, we're in a kind of weird, wonderful, awful <laughs> age of movies where we can just see everything all the time. Yeah. And when you can just see dinosaurs or superheroes flying around and stuff, all of a sudden the, the kind of the wonders go away. It's really weird. How did he make this movie look so good and then make the steaming pile of garbage that was Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull where, the, the, <laughs> where Shia LaBeouf is fighting monkeys that look like they're cartoons? He's it's so so that's so funny, right? Like Spielberg, a master of special effects to me, just looks absolutely lost when he's in the digital zone. He's just yeah. never you know, he's made good movies with a lot of digital effects like War of the Worlds and Minority Report, but even the, the scenes with digital effects, like he, he just his his characters aren't earthbound anymore, right? Something there's something lost when you lose the trucks of Raiders of the Lost Ark or the Explorers in um in Jurassic Park. It's just like, you know, he when he moves into that digital realm, it's like he's not really sure of himself anymore in a funny way. Yeah. But he just looks like every other director who just, like, pushes a button and here come the effects instead of a guy like, ooh, this is special, right? This guy's going to have effects that, that nobody else has. And I get the knock on the characters. I have, Ever since the movie came out, my friends have always said, well, Jurassic, everyone in Jurassic Park is a cliche or a one-note character. And I, I understand that, but I still think the performances resonate. Like, they got the best people to be those one notes. Like, you know, like S S Sam Neill the whole time just seems like that stuffy professor 
who, 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 when running from the dinosaur, can give a look back and appreciate that you know that, that the thing's moving in a herd. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a very art house cast, isn't it? And that yeah. was also striking to me. You know, you go, well, you got Laura Dern and Sam Neill. <laughs> yeah, and then you got Samuel, Samuel L. Jackson, who I just forget is in the movie, and then I'm watching it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, like, pre-Pulp Fiction Sam Jackson's in this movie. Yeah, Richard Attenborough. Yeah. I mean, it's like a very, it's a very, very funny cast. I was watching the uh, Amazon version last night, and they were talking about, like, you know, Sean Connery had been offered the that role of Hammond. Oh, and then, you know, right. Yeah, and like various people had turned down, um, turned down Grant. But yeah, it's it is. I think it's like when you when you have a movie like that, you want people who can do really good shorthand, right? Yeah. It's not going to be, you know, a great performance. But like also, William Hurt turned down Alan Grant. By the way, William Hurt could have been in that movie. That's Imagine what crazy. kind of chin stroking dinosaur movie that would have been. <laughs> well, him and Goldblum reunited, man. I mean, what more do you want? <laughs> That's right. Good point. Didn't um, think about that. All right, you've talked to people about the feminist theory of Jurassic Park. Do you mind sharing this theory with our listeners and, and let me know if you, <laughs> if you buy it or not. There's a vibrant world of feminist theory around Jurassic Park, which <laughs> is that, you know, number one, all the dinosaurs are female, right? Yeah. Uh, number two, that we are kind of, that what's threatened in the movie, and it's funny when you rewatch it, you realize this is, the movie is really about Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler deciding to settle down and have a family. Yes. <laughs> which they actually don't weirdly do by the third movie. But, oh, um, I mean, I, I have, I have some points on that later too, but I think we'll, I, we'll come around. Yeah. We'll come around to the, <laughs> to, to the, to the, to the full circle. Now. But yeah, you know, and so what happens is, Oh, and the other great touches, you know, when, when, when they're landing on the helicopter on the Island at the beginning of the movie, like Grant ties these seatbelts together because he can't get his seatbelts to work. And they're the two quote unquote female seatbelts, right? You know, so there's all kinds of like, delusions, you know, and that what it is, is that these female dinosaurs kind of threatening the traditional white, uh, you know, nuclear family structure. <laughs> I mean, this is not me making this up, by the way. So, several papers have been written about this, uh, about the subject. Um, is it, do I buy it? You know, I'm not sure that that's what uh, David Kep, uh, <laughs> certainly Michael Crichton, no one's idea of a feminist, was, uh, <laughs> was intending when they wrote the movie. It is a fascinating reading of the movie, though. And, you know, when you watch it, you realize, like, it's, you know, there's there's so much, there's so much masculinity in Crichton, right? You mentioned disclosure, you know, the poor picked-upon man, right, who's, who's accused of sexual harassment, that kind of stuff. Um, that, I, I think it's, I think it's kind of fascinating. It's one of the things I don't, I don't necessarily believe it, but, but I love it because it makes me watch the movie in a whole new way. I agree. I have a hard time believing it just because the Laura Dern character is, this badass symbol of independence for the most part. I mean, they do kind of, she does get a little flirty needlessly with Malcolm, but I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I get it. I think it's interesting. I'm with you, but I, I'm not sure that I think that was an intent of the story. Uh, I've talked to David Kep a little bit about dress quick. I've bothered him, which is to say I've bothered him a couple of times about dress. <laughs> Fairly sure that was not his intent though. He is I, I, I amused by those theories. Let me throw. I got a couple more questions on Jurassic Park before we move on to the to the sequels because I think that's they're, they're fertile ground for for hot takes as well. <laughs> Let's talk about Raptor Mania. Here we go with a a species that no one other than the most hardcore paleontologists and dinosaur fans would know, yeah. going from obscurity to NBA expansion franchise yeah. in the course of a year. We're, do, can you still believe how effectively this movie introduces the Raptors? solidifies their pers their personality and makes them 
ultimately the villains of the story. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the other miracle here, right? And double underline what you just said. <laughs> Jurassic Park comes out in 1993, and the next year there is an NBA franchise. <laughs> yeah. An NBA franchise. What what summer blockbuster has has done that ever? And you know, I was a dinosaur nut as a kid. I'm like 15 when I see Jurassic Park for the first time. What, the, what is a Velociraptor? What? You know, I have never heard of this, and and it turns out it's not even really what we see. There's not an actually a real dinosaur. Right? A Velociraptor is not that big. Or, you know, and certainly not as smart as Crichton and then later Spielberg makes them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's amazing. And I think I think the difference is dinosaur movies and also awesome dinosaur fiction like, you know, Ray Bradbury's uh, story, A Sound of Thunder, always relied on T-Rex. That was he was the chief dino villain. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, these guys come along and they say, I got an idea. Let's not do a big dinosaur. That's easy. Let's do a small, smart fast, lethal dinosaur, right? Who's not lumbering around that can chase you down and, and take his claw and disembowel you. And that, to me, was the, that is the other great genius of this, right? It could have easily been a T-Rex story, just like every other dinosaur movie. But when you introduce the Velociraptors, yeah, now all of a sudden we're on a different scale. We're smaller, we're faster. You know, it's almost like a chase movie instead of uh, your traditional monster movie. And I, I believe your story talked about... Um the original ending was for those dinosaur bones to collapse on the raptors, right? Yeah. Yeah. They were going to, they were going to use the, um, right. Grant was going to use like Marion, the marionette strings of the, <laughs> the T-Rex skeleton to kill the raptors. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, but the, 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 scene with the, with the T-Rex getting them is, uh, I mean, when you're in the she's theater, the, wa- she's, she's the hero, right? Yeah. You're in the theater watching it. You're just like, Whoa! I mean, it's just such a surprising, amazing payoff. Uh, and by the way, there's another reading of Jurassic Park that the dinosaurs are actually the heroes of the picture, right? The humans are the evil, money-grubbing yes. uh, ones, right? And the dinos are actually the people we, we identify with, right? We're rooting for the T-Rex. And I think that's, I think that's a fascinating reading. And, and I don't think that's wrong. But I think David Kep, uh, the co-writer, has actually said that. You know, like, we wanted to make them really sympathetic uh, in addition to being scary. I've got a couple of nitpicks on run by you and see what you think about because I like this movie. I, I I would classify it as a as a, a a three you know three and a half to four star movie um you know for what it's trying to do. I don't think it's trying to be high art. Here, here, <laughs> I hope not, yeah. here are my nitpicks. Get it. If you come near a tr- uh, Triceratops within your first hour of seeing dinosaurs are real, do you put your hand in its mouth and pop a blister on its tongue? <laughs> Probably not. You're not like a pediatrician to the Triceratops. Yeah, that's a little weird. It's so gross, and it's uh, it's also like that dinosaur can just chomp your hand off right there. I don't know what she was thinking. Yeah, seems weird. Agreed. The iconic moment when they they fumble the sunglasses and look at the dinosaurs in all their majesty, and the line that Alan Grant says is, "They do move in herds." I mean, <laughs> come on. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's that was that was bargain basement. Agreed. You're, what, you're you're on a roll. Keep going. What would you have What would you have put there? Something that better describes the majesty. You're, I mean, you're one of the best feature writers in the country. Like, what? what give me give me your one liner. Oh my god, but I'm not one of the best screenwriters in the country for this. But I, so I'm not really sure. I mean, to me, the the iconic moment of that is him pulling those Ray Ban sunglasses off. Right. Yeah. Like that's that's the that's the majesty. And by the way, I should say this about Jurassic Park. When you talk about the greatness of Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park is a great movie. I think probably so. But more importantly, it's a miraculous movie. Right. 
it showed us this thing. Like, you know, if you're a kid, you're just like, oh my God, they made dinosaurs, right? They made dinosaurs in the, a realistic dinosaur in a movie. And that to me is Jurassic Park, right? There'll be, there are plenty of other thrillers, plenty of other Steven Spielberg movies that are much better. Uh, just as, as total movies. But in terms of being a miracle, being miraculous, there's nothing. Absolutely nothing. Maybe Terminator 2, maybe Titanic, right? Like, you know, things like that, where you're just like, I can't believe I'm watching this on a movie screen and that it looks so good. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and also, oh my God, they made dinosaurs would have been a far better line than um, they, they do move in herds. <laughs> All right, we just wrote it. There we go. I, I emailed you this. The ice cream that John Hammond's eating while they're waiting in the, in the area, I think it has passed the optimal melted ice cream point. What's your what's your take on that, and what's your optimal melted ice cream point? Yeah, I'm sort of I'm I think I'm a few ticks more uh, frozen than what he gets to at that point, but yeah. I do like a lot of melt in there, you know. But kind of like you don't want to quite get to a float stage where it's like yeah. a tiny bit of ice cream in a liquid substance, but you want a lot of melting going on. Yeah, somewhere kind of like the polar ice caps are right now in the world, probably something. Like that. <laughs> uh, another another ominous sign of man's arrogance. I also would say that um, mine is uh, in the car ride home from the grocery store when you can just get the edges off the top, I think, is the, is the optimal. There you go. There you go. All I right. Like a couple, one more nitpick here. Um, Samuel L. Jackson's death being off screen. Are you pro or con? Yeah, that's a little weird. I believe it's that way if I'm remembering right in the novel, too. I mean, we get that, we get that kind of scary severed arm thing, right? Yeah, it's just that's to get the lot. jump scare. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of it kind of feels out of place in that movie, in a way. You know, it kind of feels like let's just throw something else uh, scary in here that doesn't really have anything to do with dinosaurs at all. Yeah, he seems like somebody who I think he had quotes later saying, "You never saw me die," and I had this. You know, he had this vision of him being this kind of one-armed, angry bastard roaming around Jurassic Park, fighting off the dinosaurs by himself at the end of the after the movie. <laughs> that's a pretty good fan fiction, if nothing else. He was the Barb of of the nineties. Um, I'm seeing things. All right, best line, best line in the movie: "Life finds a way." Welcome to Jurassic Park. Clever girl, or hold on to your butts. Uh, ooh. Um, you know the the Attenborough "Welcome to Jurassic Park" is is kind of iconic, right? I'd also let's have a honorable mention for I I think I'm extinct, right? You know when um, Sam Neill, right? Yeah, talking about which is as we know now, you know Phil Tippett, the great practical effects guy, said because he saw the digital dinosaurs. A scene, by the way, that made when they were screening yeah. uh, the digital effects made George Lucas cry, which I think is another amazing part. <laughs> <laughs> George Lucas cried, and then he made this, and then he made the prequels, and then America cried. Yeah, that's right. Um, but yeah, you know, I think, but I probably welcome to Jurassic Park. I think that's probably. I think hold on to your butts has had kind of a nice afterlife on Twitter. I still see it once in a while. <laughs> I feel like I bring a scientist, you bring a rock star. You know, yeah. that's another. Another great one in the helicopter on the way up. Clever Girl is my favorite. That's the one I would use most. I think Welcome to Jurassic Park is probably, um, uh, is it, I'm with you, it's probably the most iconic. All right, let's get oh, to... For, how about for worse? Should we do It's an Interactive CD-ROM? Is that up there? It's a, the, no, the I, like, I like, it's a Unix system. I know this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. This is, this is fucking Windows, you know? Like, just click click a file. Like, it doesn't need to be 30 minutes. Oh man, don't get and you know what? Disclosure, by the way, you know the entire don't tell me how I know this, but the entire 
the plot of that movie was about who gets to take over the CD-ROM <laughs> division of a major tech company. Right. Yeah, that's like the big thing. I mean, you know, it's like Crichton was, when we talk about techno thrills, he always had these cool computers, and the, and the computers in that movie still look really cool, by the way. You know, they still look right. They don't look like fake movie computers where it's just like, here is your email program or something. You know, they look like something that could run a park. I think Crichton actually had a guy like a like a computer guy who he would hire for his novels and he would say okay here's how to here's how to do this kind of stuff here's what they would use well let's talk about lost world i if we must yeah i have a theory on why it doesn't work i'm going to throw it by you okay the first one is a like a a, a cinematic thriller that has a a story thread about the arrogance of man and how we can't control nature the second one is a blatant indictment of man that is intersected by a couple scenes where dinosaurs eat people. I, I, it is so <laughs> freaking preachy, the whole movie, that I don't think it ever spends any time trying to develop anything but like sort of a tisk-tisk, man's going to get it. Yeah, I think that might be it. So that's 97, right? Yeah, 97. I was, and I was like 18 or 19, 18 when that movie came out. I think like... That might be one of the first times in the theater, you know, as you evolve this movie going consciousness, that I've just been totally, not only totally disappointed, but just totally, like, dumbfounded. Like, what is this? Yeah. You know? Especially when they get to San Diego at the end. I totally agree with your preachiness. It also seemed to be one of the things that just everybody felt they had to do from Spielberg to Crichton on down. They had Godzilla coming out right, and everybody read the San Diego scenes as trying to upstage Godzilla, which was about to come out. Everybody. Yeah trailers against each other the whole size does matter thing like oh god those bigger than a t-rex you know we got you we got you spielberg if You're... only they had seen the dailies from that movie they would have taken in the extra year to figure out this sequel better <laughs> yeah and like remember I, even in the godzilla sequel didn't he remembering right didn't he smash a t-rex skeleton Oh, you're exactly that right. Was, it, 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 that was the initial teaser trailer for godzilla because i the whole time was i was like, watching it i was like they're making another jurassic park movie like cool yeah, and it's, it's just nothing. There's just no, I mean, I'm trying to remember what I remember from that movie, but I remember even the special effects, which it had four years uh, to kind of bake. You know, when the T when the Raptors are chasing around that gas station thing that's on the second island, yes. it just looked really. And the Raptors are kind of running into walls like the Three Stooges or whatever. It just kind of looks really bad and really silly, and you don't believe it at all. It's really, really strange. Let's talk about Jeff Goldblum as the lead here. It's a classic case of Joey works on Friends. Joey doesn't work as his own sitcom. <laughs> and I read a great, I heard a great analysis on the podcast, um, uh, Blank Check, where they they were saying that he was he was the the biggest star. I mean, he'd been in Independence Day, so he was the biggest star of the original movies. It made sense to roll him forward, but. By making him the guy who has to have all the dramatic reactions, they took away the things that made him so great in the first one, which was he was the guy dropping the one-liners about the biggest pile of shit and and stuff like that. And and so he never he never could find that balance between humor and leading man, in my opinion. Yeah, and he, he's not he's not the lead, right? He's the he's the classic supporting guy, you know, the the supporting funny guy in a in a blockbuster. Yeah. Also, that the Crichton killed him in the first novel and had to kind of bring him back because he was, really, he was the most interesting character. But totally, he should be doing funny one-liners. He should not be leading the action. As there, it were, okay, is this like the worst Julianne Moore performance ever? Who? Oh, would, it's this or it's this <laughs> or the or Hannibal. I mean, it's like it's like neck and neck. 
Spielberg was doing that thing that Woody Allen has done for years where it's like, oh, here's an actor who's had a recent success. Let me put them in my movie, whether they belong there or not. And he kind of does that with both Vince Vaughn and Julianne Moore in, Vince, in uh, The Lost World. Vince Vaughn is shocking because Hollywood had not figured out that he was just a slacker, like, goof-off. <laughs> and so here he is trying to be this, like, I'm the insurance policy, John Hammond sent. It's like, what, dude? No, what? You're, Vince, you're the dude from Swingers. Just, just like, be in the corner. <laughs> yeah. All right. The action That's in San Diego, the action in San Diego, I had heard back in the day, this is completely unverified, but I had heard back in the day in some interview with Spielberg that that was not supposed to be in this movie. That was going to be the third Jurassic Park was that they get to the mainland and that he thought that was too good an opportunity. And he was like, I want to do that in my movie. He knew he wasn't going to do three. So he made the third act in San Diego. That to me makes sense because it feels tacked on it. There's no weight to it at all. And I, I feel like they actually ruined a third movie, which could have taken place on shores and been uh, and re re-energized the sequels instead of going back to these islands. Yeah, I mean, kind of a hunt movie, right? These these things have right. kind of embedded themselves, and 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 yeah, they're on the mainland. Yeah, no, I think that would have been really cool. It's also like Spielberg kind of going back to his comfy wheelhouse of suburbia, right? All those yeah. scenes of the dog in the doghouse and the little kid looking at the dinosaur out his window and all that stuff. Like he's kind of going back to ET and, and all those other things he's done in that zone. Yeah, it feels very tacked. I, I I believe that theory that he tacked it on. Whether or not it's true, it sounds absolutely right. Okay, let's rank the worst scenes because the, the the thing you have to talk about when you talk about this movie, and we're gonna put in the context of the entire franchise. So, worst worst scene between these choices: the the uneven bars, little girl fighting raptors in Lost World, the. <laughs> Talking raptor dream sequence in Jurassic Park three, or oh the God. or the running in heels in Jurassic World. Wow, I mean, <laughs> the last one is so you know inter- intertwined with gender politics that it may just go to another level and maybe on another list. Yeah, uh, the the parallel bars thing paying off for is just was so bad. I mean, I remember just again like I don't know that I could really articulate about movies at age eighteen, and I was like, that's terrible. That's <laughs> off uh yeah let's let's go with that the, the talking raptor is so dumb but it just goes away really quickly right yeah not about it after five seconds also by the way he's a different cinematographer for the lost world he's john who's kaminsky and i remember the beginning of those scenes where david where richard attenborough's in it and it's all lit really weird and really different it's that kind of lighting that spielberg uses in all his movies now from that from those scenes i was like yeah this is weird already this is wrong and weird I agree. His lighting, he, he's gone overboard on the backlighting. Um, it almost just seems like computerized. It drives me crazy. I, the, the, but the, the raptor scene with the, with the uneven bars, it's the most convenient, at the risk of sounding trite here, it's the most convenient um, use of gymnastics equipment since that Jim Cotta movie, if you, if you know that movie. <laughs> Where the guy's like fighting ninjas and he's like, oh, a pommel horse. Like, <laughs> Perfect, right? <laughs> and it, it's like, let's give everyone something to do, right? Everyone has to be the hero by the end of the movie. If three had come before two, do you think Jurassic Park has a more successful, immediate future after the first one? Probably so. Yeah, because three was really the one that I felt like, for me anyway, kind of got me back on the train. And I, by three, I didn't care anymore. Right. I was like, let's, let's not further uh, desecrate this this wonderful cinematic legacy and i kind of went into it cold 
you know, but they said I hadn't even read reviews or anything. And I was like, oh, okay. At least it's at least it's you know running away from that, di- running around and you know in, in kind of a cool way and running away from dinosaurs. And by the way, you know, I watched three now and it just looks the special effects look really bad. Like their budget was like so much worse than the other movies. Yeah, you know, it just doesn't look quite as crisp. But um, but it's definitely more in the right vein, right? I agree. I also think that um, the story doesn't make. I mean, the the fact that he was tricked by the parents to go on the island makes them, in my opinion, unsympathetic figures. The entire movie, like I'm kind of like these parents deserve to die. I don't care if they get their marriage back on track. I also don't understand how that kid becomes Bear Grylls and like fights off raptors and collects T Rex piss. Uh, you know, he's like kind of, he's like the original survivalist. I said we should. Alexander Payne got a co-writing credit on Jurassic Park Three. What? Really? Yeah. I that's that's insane. <laughs> and it's it, it's the most abrupt ending in movie history. They're running from the Spinosaurus, and they run over a hill, and the military's there, and they're like, "Great, we're done." There is it, it, there is no there's no dramatic fight with the Spinosaurus that like closes it. It's just kind of like, oh, I guess it can't go over this hill. Yeah, I do like any movie that is about ancient cell phones. Now, ancient cell phones. <laughs> yeah, the satellite with a, phone. With a yeah, with a kind of like a ring. It was kind of the beginning of the funny ringtone era. And and the and, dinosaur eats it right, and so it's like whenever they hear the phone, it's like the Spinosaurus is there. It's kind of funny, right? It kind of it's ludicrous, but it kind of works, you know. Where do you stand on the franchise? Seems to have. The franchise seems to have adopted the mantra that the only way to continue to up the ante is to either introduce or invent dinosaurs that are bigger and smarter and scarier. Are you, do you, are you okay with that? Do you want to keep seeing them make up new skills or do you feel like it can get back to the basics and be successful? I really think we've pretty much, you know, as a society, probably plumbed Jurassic Park for all it's worth. Right here, <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm not sure. You know, it's one of those things. Like, it's there is certainly like a Hollywood answer to this problem where you could figure out a way to do another movie, and I guess they are right. There's another Jurassic World coming up. Oh yeah. I just don't see like, I just don't see where it go from here, and because it's we're still we're still operating from the T Rex baseline. Like, what is gonna what is gonna eat the T Rex? Right. I mean, that's what Jurassic World. <laughs> ultimately about what's going to what's going to stop the T-Rex or the or the bigger you know what's going to be a bigger a bigger you know scarier dinosaur than that and in in in, in Jurassic World right it's this kind of fake invented dinosaur <laughs> We're not, we can't even find something in the fossil record anymore well so, yeah i don't i don't know i mean it's almost like you feel like they're going to wait 10 years and then they'll just kind of remake the original again yeah and where do you stand on the training the raptors for military use it was like I, I think I wrote at the time it was like Richard Pearl, you know, from the Bush administration is wanted in the movie. <laughs> the neocon Jurassic Park. I don't yeah, I that doesn't this is not interesting to me at all. There's this weird it, it the whole Jurassic world of Jurassic Park apocrypha, there's this weird script that um oh goodness, what's his name wrote? Uh that's about like about like raptors being, you know, like with missile launchers being tied to them and then being kind of becoming this kind of weird. Um, I think John Sales actually wrote it. Correct me if I'm wrong. I I mean, absolutely mind blowing. That's even weirder than Alexander Payne co writing Draft 3. But um, and it, and it never got made, and I felt like they were taking parts of that and, and sticking it onto that movie. So stupid. 
Where would you take? Okay, so where would you take Jurassic World if you could, knowing there's going to be a sequel? I mean, the, this first one made 565 million in the United States alone. Like you knew it was coming. W- give me one idea that you think would be interesting enough for the franchise to, um, you know, continue to hold your attention beyond just curiosity and wanting to see what they make. Wow, what would hold my attention? Um, you know. Something I think it's more of a feeling, but something that sort of captures the wonder of dinosaurs. A few scenes in Jurassic World, you know, when they're going through with their little cool little uh, bubble car, whatever the heck that thing is, right? They're kind of go gambling among the dinosaurs. You know, I just think to me it's like a little bit more of the original Jurassic and also the Conan Doyle novel, The Lost World, which Crichton gleefully ripped off for his movie, or <clears throat> for excuse me, for his book, which is like you're out in the wild with the dinosaurs, right? You know, in the Conan Doyle book, they find dinosaurs on this plateau in South America, you know, all these explorers. And to me, like, that idea is really cool. Almost maybe I'd just remake the Conan Doyle movie and just call it Jurassic Park, right? There's this, <laughs> there's this lost thing, and there's not even humans involved or greedy humans, but it's about, you know, sort of finding these, these prehistoric beasts down the wild. I think that's pretty cool. I would go full um, poacher route and just, like you said earlier, make the dinosaurs the protagonists, make... The, the, the mankind just evil. There's that you know people legally get onto the island trying to kill the dinosaurs for sport, and just give up this idea of. I, I agree with you that the majesty is probably done. I, I think they, you know, the first nothing will ever re- replicate the first one when you first see the dinosaurs on screen. So, just make them badass. But I don't know. I also last question on that is: Is Chris Pratt any good in that movie? No. Yeah, no. I agree. No. We were all we were in this moment of everybody loves Chris Pratt, and of course it made so much money that I think his incredibly wooden bad performance was completely excused. Acting in that movie is atrocious. That whole movie. There's a great moment in the Nerdist uh, where they're in, Chris Hardwick's interviewing Chris Pratt, and he Hardwick had not seen Jurassic World yet, so he starts talking about how it's so great that leading men can be like you, kind of projecting his character from guardians of the galaxy can be these sarcastic regular guys and pratt cuts him off and he's like uh my character in this is like (laughs) not that it's like completely (laughs) superhero (laughs) action guy and it was so awkward it was great yeah it's not i mean he's just like it's sort of like they just the safari suit is the character right yeah i mean we don't we don't really know anything other than that and and get much deeper so you've given me a ton of time i i can't thank you enough for it to close what is how would you, I guess, where would you place Jurassic Park, the movie, and the franchise? And those can be two separate answers here. Into the greater, uh, like, I guess, where would you kind of place it within pop culture? Like, what importance and or legacy do you feel like it, it still has? I go back to 1993 as an official old man, right? And what I what I think is there's all, there are all these movies that are made right around that time, uh, The Abyss and James Cameron, which I believe is 89, forgive yeah. me if I get these dates wrong, Terminator 2 in 1991, and then Jurassic Park and then, uh, in 93, and Titanic in 96, right? And they're at this really interesting moment in the movies, which is that practical effects have gotten as good as they were probably ever going to get, right? And then there was this digital frontier just over the horizon, right, where we were going to go fully into the digital age. But it wasn't the fully digitized movie that we have now, right, where people are just, you know, defying gravity and and it's Sharknado and everything is Sharknado. So we had this kind of magical moment, right, where it's like you could see the past and you could also see the future. And those, 
I think those four movies, and you could probably argue a few other things into that list, um, were made at this awesome moment, right? Where you could just appreciate everything that was like me as a child of the 80s and the early 90s grew up with. And then you could also see like where the movies were going. And it was this kind of amazing thing, you know, it was like kind of a way to both honor your past and appreciate the future. And I feel like, you know, now I feel like a little bit alienated from, from summer movies in a lot of ways. Cause I look at it and like, this just doesn't feel like the movies I grew up with, whether they're good or some of them are even really good, but it just doesn't tactily, you know, it doesn't feel like those movies Jurassic and, and that group really did. And, you know, they were all kind of big swaggering visions. And to me, that's that's what it's going to be a part of when we look back at it. It's going to be really, it definitely holds up. It's like a lot of the original Star Wars movies where you watch and you go, boy, these effects are really, really good 20 odd years later. But really, it's this kind of at this at this moment, right? We're just, it's almost like Jurassic Park science, right? We're at the cutting edge, you know, we're just about to go into this sort of glorious future. And that's and that's what I think it, it's great importance is going to be. Are you optimistic for the future of the franchise? No, <laughs> you know, and, and it's okay. You know, to me, like if they make a hundred sequels, like I'm not the guy who says, you know, I don't, it's going to ruin, you're going to ruin, you're going to, you're going to destroy my childhood retroactively by making, you know, go ahead and make movies, right? This is, you know, Michael Crichton would have loved that his franchise became cheapo, easily reproduced entertainment, right? Like he was writing pulp. That's what pulp is. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know that I really want to watch any of them. Um, and, and, you know, but Jurassic Park is this kind of, you know, kind of wonderful little, little, little moment in the past to me will always, will always be there and it'll always be great. And we always remember never use frog DNA for anything. <laughs> Another thing everybody knows, right? They, <laughs> How does everybody know that? It's they, amazing. They should have made all the, uh, all the animals in the new one, all the dinosaurs in the new one male, just to see if the gamer great crowd would have been pissed off that like they ruined their childhood by like swapping the sexes then. <laughs> Speaking of gender politics, oh my gosh, <laughs> oh, we got a whole new, a whole new frontier. Uh, if they asked if they could, they never asked if they should. Uh, oh, you know what? That uh, a great line that I left off my best lines of the first one. Um, uh, so many list, great lines for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, I can't thank you enough for joining. I want to tell everybody to follow you uh, and read your work at The Ringer and follow you on Twitter at uh, Brian Curtis. I, your, some of your more more recent stories were right in our wheelhouse as well. A great story on the end of Stick to Sports. And let me ask you about that real quick. Our, our show specializes in drawing out the sort of personality and opinions beyond sports from athletes and media. I, I'm a big believer that the stick to sports era is, is over. I don't think we're going to put this, this back into the, into the toothpaste here. Do you agree with that? Do you feel like, I guess, where do you feel like we are in the evolution of people in the sports world, not just feeling that they can speak out uh, on whatever they want to speak out on, but that they, they should and or think it's part of, of why they're, you know, part of the expectation from fans. Yeah, in terms of sports writers, I agree to an extent uh, that we've crossed a Rubicon and that, you know, it's sort of that, that the, wall, the, the, sports, the old sports page in newspapers, right, was this kind of walled garden that the world didn't often, the real world didn't often get into. Uh, I think those days are over thanks to a lot of different things. I do think this, though. You know, when readers get pissed off because their favorite sports writers are tweeting too much about politics or writing too much about politics, sports writers are just as self-interested as everybody else, right? And if a big part of your audience is threatening to go away, you know, I think some people really care about this stuff. They're really into the morality of it. I think some people go, okay, never mind. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want half my Twitter followers to go, uh, you know, leave me for Adam Schefter, right? So 
I think that's, that is the, you know, be the check on this, right? How many of the people who are writing about politics now and tweeting about politics are really, really care about this stuff? And how many people care only to the point that they'll become radioactive or unpopular with their audience? And that'll be kind of an interesting thing to watch. Yeah, the only other X factor is, like, if Twitter dies, a quick death, if we see, I don't think it will, uh, given a, how much capital has been put into it, but if something were to happen that it would just disappear in a year and a half or two-year stretch, and and people don't migrate to another platform that's exactly like that with the same access to opinions, I wonder if the, it'll de-emphasize the importance. I think Twitter has become this weird media ecosystem that it's almost like it's self-sustaining. Like people go on Twitter to to hate, look at opinions, and then they tweet about it, and then it just it just continues the cycle. Well, I don't know that that's going to be the same way people use Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, and other emerging platforms. So, well, I, that's just my own take. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think the post the post Twitter world, right? If we ever get there, it'll be unpredictable. But you know, as they say in Jurassic Park, life finds a way. <laughs> well. Thank you so much for the time, Brian. This was great. I, I, I didn't mean to keep you almost an hour here, but I really appreciate you giving me all, all this time. I feel like we could have got seven hours. Thank you so much. And we are back in the sports world. Athletes often take a lot of guff plenty of guff for getting involved in things they like music movies clay matthew style i was gonna uh, say pitch perfect too is he it, getting heat for that or what i'm sure he did or is he getting praise for that i'm sure they got heat when they didn't win the super bowl it's like you know maybe you should have been watching game film i hate people like that we know life is <laughs> work and the things that distract you from work so on this show we celebrate distractions joe what's been distracting you this week I'm going to keep it in the lost world theme and go with another thing that has world in the title. It's a podcast. You recommended a long time ago the Keep It at 1600 podcast, which I very yes. much enjoyed. Reboot. They're great. So around the holidays, I was like, where are all their episodes? They went on <laughs> Christmas vacation. Turns out they just did a total rebranding relaunch. They made their own network. Now it's Pod Save America. Same guys. It's great. Self-admittedly ad, self left-leaning, but... Have you done... Uh, yeah, they do. They all worked for Obama. I yes. know. But um, have you done Pod Save the World? That's what my thing is. Oh. So it's Tommy Vitor, one of the hosts of Pod Save America, and he goes fully international. It's all about international policy. He is the former spokesman for Obama's National Security Council. And so every... I think every Wednesday is an interview with someone in the international affairs, international politics world. And it's just like total deep dives of like, what is it like to fly to these secret meetings in Yemen or in Oman where you're negotiating the Iran nuclear deal? And like, what is it like traveling with the secretary of state? Right. It's just like total deep dive into, you know, behind the curtain of what it's like to work in international politics. It's super interesting. They're like hour long episodes. Um, so if you're interested at all in like, you know, how policy get ma gets made, um, you know, former, former administration officials commenting on the current administration, I would totally recommend it. He's a great host. That one I think is much more sort of center line. I feel like they're much more sort of, let's talk about the, the meat and bones and not 
sort of um, throw our, you know, wave our flags around. So, but those guys are great, and even if you both both the podcasts are great. Pod Save the World, Pod Save America. I mean, you're not going to listen to it if you're, you know, if you're only logging on to Breitbart for, um, you know, for your news. But if you're just a a um, a right leaning moderate, I think you can appreciate they have great chemistry. Yeah, they're fun. Um, and, they try and, and keep it there right. are, yeah. you know, there are other podcasts that are like that on the other side. Like there's like Radio Free GOP, which was a show that came out, the kind of anti-Trumpish show. I, I'm waiting for the Trumpian media outlet to arise that I actually enjoy the hosts enough to you know it, it, listen to the put, consume the media beyond aside and be like i'll give these guys a shot because i don't yeah i, I haven't i haven't found it yet and i've actually done some sniffing around like i there are elements to what some conservative pundits do that i uh, you know in terms of their personality i think are i think are interesting so i need to if you have uh, suggestions i'm happy i'm open-minded we're all making yeah. efforts to bridge the divide um what do you and, got brad what do you what's distracting you all right Let's talk about Jack the Ripper. Oh, no. Is this a TV show? No, it should be. Uh, I listened to a series of podcasts by the last house on the the, last podcast on the left. These are like comedians and actors. And I don't know. There's a bunch of them. And they just talk about crazy true crime and weird stuff. They do a lot of serial killer stuff. Um, They're funny. They're not for everybody. If you like My Favorite Murder... Um, go check out these guys, but just beware. Like it's if you, my favorite murder fans, they either love the show or hate it. It's 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 the it's it's much. Frattier is like such a loaded term. It's 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 much more testosterone fueled. Okay, they're not frat house, but like it's just a it's a different brand of comedy, more aggressive brand of comedy. But they did a, a bunch of episodes on Jack the Ripper, and. Up rocking the the new baby at night. Yeah, it was very helpful. And their episodes about the various, and their episodes about the various suspects was really good. So I think it was like episode five, maybe. Okay. And I highly recommend. I'm very fascinated by the Jack the Ripper stuff, and they they subscribe to the more elementary theories, which is that it was like a drifter guy, and that maybe one or two of the murders was actually attributed to Jack the Ripper, but it should not have been. Mm. If you watch the movie From Hell, or have read that comic book, there's the other theory that it was a member of the British royal family who was killing these prostitutes, or who had, no, who had fathered a child with a prostitute, and that they set up the killings to kill her and cover all this up. Interesting. There's also all this stuff about the Freemasons because of like Masonic, you know, whatever. But why the podcast is so great is because they're very candid about how living in that area of the world at that time would have been like a living hell, <laughs> like a waking nightmare. Everyone would have stunk. Yeah. The jo- they're like, dude, the jobs these people had were like, I like hauled barely not rotting fish around all day and then went to get a prostitute and get drunk in a bar before I went and slept on the floor. Like, and that was my life for 30 years. And then I died of dysentery. I'm fascinated by thinking about the actual cruel realities of the past. Here's one. Like all the founding fathers, did they just stink like shit? I think soap was invented when our country was Was founded. Was toilet paper invented? 
I don't know. So like Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote the Did he just have poopy pants? Is that what you're asking? Stink like a turd. I don't know. I mean, George Washington's teeth were so bad. Have you seen Hamilton? George Washington's teeth were so bad. There's a whole song about this in Hamilton. Is there really? I have not seen Hamilton. (laughs) Who am I, Gareth? No. No, there's not. Oh, oh, I thought you were being serious. Man, they did everything. There is a reference to... A, a woman's perfume. They sell. Uh, Aaron Burr says to the scholarship, he says, "You smell like your your father has money." How about this? How bad was everyone's breath? I don't know. Bad, Joe. I think this is, ladies and gentlemen of the podcast. This is coming from someone. This is come. You're hearing this from a. Would you describe yourself as a germaphobe? <laughs> I'm a. I'm definitely a breathophobe in that you did I just brush your teeth. Before I don't we chew came gum. Here. I do mint. I do mint strips. The Listerine strips. But I brush my teeth like four times a day. I Twice think you at work. Would, I think time time travel Brad would not do well then. I agree. You know why I asked if this was a TV thing why? now five minutes? Because there's a TV show on ABC coming soon called Time After Time where Jack the Ripper gets time traveled to present day. Oh. That's where I thought. And I don't know if it's out yet. I thought you are going to be like... Dude, I got this sweet new show that I've been watching. It's all about Jack the Ripper. No, no, this is just it doesn't look good. speculation about the actual nature of the crimes and the smelliness of the participants. <laughs> in, that, in that order. <laughs> anyway, last podcast on the left. Check it out. Okay, let's do some shout outs. Let's give a shout out first to Brian Curtis from The Ringer. Yeah, follow him on Twitter. He is a um, a great read. Does lots of really really provocative writing for The Ringer. Um, and just knows his Jurassic Park in and out. And let's give a shout out to our co-hosts, uh, Adam and Gareth. Yeah. Well, you know, you'll hear from those guys again very soon. Great, guys. And uh, Joe, any shout outs? Shout out to uh, Uncle Drew and Steven Spielberg. You know, okay, Crystal Skull might not have been great, but that guy's making movies like crazy. All right. He's trying. So uh, I think we should give credit where credit's due. He's made a lot of good movies. Favorite Steven Spielberg movie. Or one that you like. Go. One that surprised you. Tr- switching the question up. One that surprised you. Like, oh, I didn't realize Schindler's List was about that. <laughs> well, I did know that that was about the Holocaust. Yeah, there had been there had been a little bit of media coverage about it. Yep. Uh, I'm looking him up right now. Yeah, let's get some idea. I know one that surprised me recently. Okay, what was it? Bridge of Spies. I heard that was really good. I just didn't want to watch it at all. It was very good. It looked, it felt in the previews, Oscar Beatty, cheesetastic, Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, great. Um, but I really enjoyed it. All right. I I got another favorite of mine for I, you. I like Minority Report as like a sleeper, like interesting. It's a good movie. I think it's an interesting vision of the future. I yeah. just think it kind of falls apart at the end. I think Private Ryan is amazing if you just t- if you lopped off if you if if you lopped off the the bookends of private ryan the old man part yeah it's a perfect movie if you just lop that off but that's the whole thing that gives you context for who he is and it's whatever Ugh. yeah right <laughs> um you just wanted matt damon to have more screen time yeah i uh i mean oh, oh go ahead catch me if you can yay or nay it's an entertaining romp Yes. I, if, you, if you just go into it thinking. That's a movie that if it's on TV, no matter where I get into it, I'll finish it. 
I feel strongly about Leonardo DiCaprio in this way. I don't think he's a great actor in the way that, you know, many people, many people just absorb them, absorb the role and you just sort of forget you're watching. And I'm always aware I'm watching Leonardo DiCaprio act. And I think that if you look at some performances like Shutter Island, I don't think they're great. I think they get praised, but I don't think they're great. I think we're Leonardo DiCaprio, and Brad Pitt is the same way, so bear with me. Brad Pitt's a tough one. I'm I, watching a Brad Pitt movie. I like them when they are at their effortless best, meaning, and Bill Simmons has said this uh, since we have a Ringer guest on, Brad Pitt is great in uh, Moneyball because he's giving a Robert Redford performance. Just He's just being him, Yeah, but it's an effortless Great him. movie. I think Leonardo DiCaprio is great in Inception. Yeah, but I prefer him there, just polished and himself, than I than I do in The Departed, which I still maintain is the worst movie ever made. <laughs> Damn, I hate The Departed so much. Yeah, and it's okay. I, there's no, I don't love it. It's not okay. It's awful. It's worse than it's worse than Lost World. We're gonna come back. Okay, if there's anyone out there who listens to the show and wants to come on and defend The Departed, we're gonna have a two part episode. Mallrats and Departed <laughs> showdown with okay, Brad. I will do that. I will. I will. I will. It's gotta I will be the debate. same person though. I, I will debate. <laughs> yeah, no, it can be two different people. I will debate with somebody. Um, the the Departed. We gotta have a moderator. It's we gotta terrible. Have Gareth moderator. It's a ter- It's Jack Nicholson waving a dildo around and drawing pictures of mice. I forgot about that. It's nineteen Rolling Stone songs that you've already heard in all of Scorsese's movies. What about Boston accents? The worst Boston accents. The worst. I mean, and then the the movie it was based on was so much better. What movie was it based on? Infernal Affairs. So uh, I I think it's Chinese. It might be from a different Asian country. I apologize if I'm if it's Korean or something. Distributing, yeah. It's great, and it does so many cooler things than this movie does. Also. You won best director. You're, you're it, it, okay. Okay. How much? What? What's our ticker at right now? All right. How much time? We <laughs> Real got? quick. Thirty seconds. <laughs> that movie would have won nothing if Scorsese had won those Oscars for The Aviator or any of his other movies. Yes, that movie. But The Aviator was was the one that was supposed to win him everything. Another Leonardo DiCaprio movie. But How then about million Leo dollar. Yeah, Leo's fine in that. He. I think it starts to fall apart when he gets. When he starts nervous and ticky, pee in, in his jar and grow yeah, his I think out. it. I like him better in the earlier part of that, but I think he's but he's fine. He's great in that. That movie, if that had won the Oscars, it was supposed to win for director and picture. Then, then the Departed Martin's would not done. have been he's rewarded. Got what he's got, yeah. And I, no I really buzz. maintain that. And I think that, unfortunately, Million Dollar Baby, I think, beat The Aviator that year. I couldn't tell you. And Million Dollar Baby is a movie picture. that does not hold up at all. The time yeah. has not been kind to that movie. It is, it is, you don't look back and go, that just really captured the zeitgeist. <laughs> <laughs> even from like a women's sports perspective, I, I should talk to someone about, is that even a good like women in sports movie? I don't know that I would put it ahead of Girl Fight, of like a much superior. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. We could have a whole episode about this. All right. Well, and we, <laughs> depending on how many callers we get, we, we might. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Defend well, Million Dollar Baby, go. 
no call us i in. can't i can't <laughs> all right well if you if you want to talk to us about these topics or anything else just not sports at gmail.com find us on twitter at just not sports instagram facebook joe always a pleasure thanks brad and uh should we end with with adam giving some shout outs how about yeah. do you want to end with Shaq giving the shout outs yeah ooh, i like that all right sorry adam we're gonna mix it up mr o'neill Take it away. Psych.